The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, one of the themes of the past six months of our shows has been really the debt trap diplomacy debate that's been going on. Now, that's due in part because... The United States government, really under the Trump administration, but it's it's some it's extended even prior to that, has raised these issues, has been relentless in accusing China as being a predatory lender. Now, the the line that the Americans are giving is that China is using loans and debt as a way to trap developing countries. And the idea is, is that they're loading up these countries with an unsustainable amount of of debt that they know developing countries will not be able to pay, not just in Africa, but in other parts of the world as well. And when they can't pay, they will then either seize assets or leverage that for political influence. Kobus, overall, when you look back on the past six to nine months and you see people like U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, do you get the feeling that the U.S. message is resonating in parts of Africa? And what's been the response? It's certainly being picked up in the African press. Um, and because in in some cases, both China and African governments can be not wonderful in, in how they communicate with their publics, these stories have, have taken on momentum and they've actually been quite difficult to debunk. You know, so in, in some, so for example, in Zambia, it's been very difficult, despite numerous denials by the government, to, to really establish that China hasn't taken over key state assets, including the the state broadcaster, you know, so so you 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 kind of hear it taken almost as a fact, you know, like everyone knows that China took over the state broadcast in Zambia, and then it it kind of it comes back to academics to be like, uh, no, actually, the, the you know a, a, a formal takeover has not has not actually not occurred. So you know, it, it's the stories tend to kind of take on this kind of life of their own, and they become very difficult to debunk. And really up until the past couple of weeks, that's even academics and scholars and journalists have not challenged the United States to provide any evidence for its claim that China is engaging, engaging in predatory lending. I should also say that it's not only the United States, but the, the U.S. certainly has the loudest voice in this. Now, it's very, very interesting because in just the past two or three weeks, now there has been a torrent. I mean, it's really been remarkable of, uh, you know, debunking of, of articles that are coming out and data that's coming out to debunk this. So let me just give you a list here. Uh, the Rhodium Group, which is a private research group out of New York, they came out with data that said not only is there not a debt trap, in fact, the Chinese have forgiven or rescheduled up to $50 billion. Then Hannah Ryder's development reimagined team out of Beijing, they came up with a different number at about $9.8 billion of Chinese debt cancellation and rescheduling. Damien Ma at Macro Polo, which is the think tank at the Paulson Institute, he came out with a debunking. Uh, Umesh uh, Moramualdi is in, wrote in The Diplomat. Uh, again, another debunking focusing on Sri Lanka in particular and the port at Habandota. And of course, there was an article misdiagnosing the Chinese infrastructure push written by Deborah Braudigan, professor and at Johns Hopkins University and the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. And that article in particular sparked a really, really very, very lively conversation about where we are with the debt trap diplomacy issue. And we are thrilled to have back on the show again uh, for a third time after all these years, uh, Professor Braudigam. Very good morning to you. Good morning, Eric. And good morning, Kobus. It's wonderful to be back. It's great to have you back, and it's great to talk to you about this debt trap diplomacy issue because of the timing of it all. Uh, despite the fact that there is this evidence that seems to be coming out, people like you, scholars, are kind of challenging the narrative coming out of Washington. Nonetheless, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, doesn't seem to be listening to what you're saying because just last week in London, he was out there talking about it again. And they are, again, I think the, the best word to describe them is relentless. You said at the start of your essay 
that was in the American interest, again, misdiagnosing the Chinese infrastructure push, you posed the question right at the beginning of your article, how worried should the West be about this new stage of China's outward march? And that really set the tone for your article. And I think that's a good starting point for us in our discussion about debt trap diplomacy. How worried should they be? As I argued in that article, I don't think we should be nearly as worried um, about China's outward march and about the uh, aspects of infrastructure building and the lending that accompanies that as we are right now. And I think that's uh, in play because looking at the evidence of where this is causing problems and where this has the potential to cause problems, there are uh, there's so far very, very few cases in which we can actually point to a significant issue. And certainly um, out of all of the cases that have been raised and the ones that you've mentioned right now, Zambia and other places, um, and we can talk in more detail about those cases because I've also looked into most of those, um, the only one that people really raise is this one in Sri Lanka. And I think when you look closely at the details of that, it is very easy to explain this as a case of a commercial project that went on the case of the Sri Lanka side that went, um, that actually didn't have enough time to actually prove its merit. And um, and the whole situation in Sri Lanka is really one um, which was one of Sri Lanka's national debt problems, not a particular project. And then when you look at Sri Lanka's national debt problems, it was really about a host of lenders. So that brings me to the main point that I want to say about this worry, which is that I think the West is right to be worried about rising debt in the developing world. We are in a cycle right now that resembles a little bit what happened in the 1970s and the 1980s um, when there was a very significant debt crisis in the developing world. And there are many reasons for that particular earlier crisis that are not the same as the ones now, but some things are similar. And so I think in Africa, about a third of the countries are already in debt distress or at risk of debt distress. And we can see this reflected in fragile um, political economies in Asia as well. Not so much, uh, except for the case of Venezuela, not so much in Latin America. But these risks are there, and those of us with long memories remember that this was a very significant problem in Africa for a long time. So people are right to be worried. But is China to blame? And that's where I say no. So do you feel that on the U.S. side, um, are, is, is the Trump administration... How can I put this? Um, are, are, is is the, the the danger of debt distress in developing certain developing economies? Is that really the core of their concern, or do you think it 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 is more a shorthand way of talking about the expansion of Chinese influence via these kind of semi permanent relationships that are created by debt? So more concern about about long term relationships of dependency that are being being kind of strengthened between China and large parts. Of of the developing world, rather than particularly whether Zambia is going to going to going to flip into debt distress or not. That's very much the case, Cobus. Um, this is all about China, and just as an example of that, when you look at the administration's new Africa strategy, they did mention Africa forty times in the strategy, but they mentioned China seventeen times. So it's a, uh, I think that's almost half as many as were mentioned just about Africa. So the concern in Africa really is about China, and the concern in the rest of the world is about China. And this is, I think, for interesting and legitimate reasons, the United States is concerned about China's rise. And this administration has put this pretty much front and center of its foreign policy. That's not uh, inappropriate. I think China's rise uh, has many worrying qualities about it. There are things that uh, the United States is the largest democracy, or the, the uh, most prominent world power, uh, needs to be concerned about. But we're not the largest democracy. Obviously, India is. But we are the um, the world's superpower right now. And I think we represent, and we have represented in the past, uh, many very fine values that we do not see reflected in the Chinese government today. But that aside, what we're doing is we're picking up on um, a kind of a, we're going the low road in this way. We're picking up on 
um, scare tactics. Uh, we're doing name calling. We're, um, I think, not con- not handling this in a constructive way. I think it could be done uh, in a far better and far more professional and far more uh, in a way that has much more enduring, positive and lasting consequences. Right now, I think the scare tactics are are actually quite harmful for the medium to long term. You're somebody who's in Washington. Uh, I've seen you on C-SPAN testify in front of House committees, and you obviously interact with people at the State Department through your work at the China-Africa Research Initiative. And I guess what surprised me when I talked to people inside the Beltway is that educated, well-meaning, thoughtful people default to some of these really idiotic, not proven type of lines. And again, I think there's your point is very well taken with me, is that there's just no evidence So if, in fact, the Chinese are engaging in a form of debt trap diplomacy that is based on seizing assets, there just isn't the evidence to support it. So tell me a little bit about what you think is going on in the minds of these policymakers and beltway types who are communicating this. So someone like Pompeo, I guess he's really just trying to communicate to the American people. Is this a domestic audience he's trying to narrow to? to target with these kind of messaging? Some of the think tank people, I don't know who they're talking about this. Are they just ill-informed? Are they so blinded by partisanship? What's the thinking behind the promotion of this narrative that is so stubborn? Well, let's take this, um, what's happening in Washington, and and really we can put it into two different levels of analysis. Um, And I do speak to a lot of people in Washington. What I find in my discussions with people who are actually doing analytical work in the government, and this ranges from the military to the intelligence community, the State Department, Treasury, and so on, is that people that are doing the work are really curious. They want to know what's going on. They may um, have a good background in it. And when they do have a good background, they pretty much are, uh, their analysis is consistent with the analysis that the academics you've mentioned have been doing, including our organization. But, um, and then when they are coming to learn, they're they're interested and they're open-minded about uh, looking at evidence on different points of view. But what's happened, of course, is that there's this overlay that is political. And so they serve political masters. And you don't hear any of that uh, questioning coming out in public because they can't. Uh, the roles in the government preclude that. But I do hear it a lot in private in our conversations. So that's the two levels of what's happening there. Now, at that political level, we can see... Um, for example, climate change. There's a, another very good set of uh, issues over which there's huge evidence that comes from the scientific community about the nature of climate change. And yet at the political level in Washington, we're pretty much deniers. And so I, I see it as very parallel. There's really not, at the political level, there's not an interest in the facts. Uh, this is, as many people have pointed out, a fact-challenged administration at the highest levels. And so it's very hard for uh, evidence coming from the academic community and from the uh, policy think tank community to penetrate into that. And uh, and the audience for this, COBUS, is not um, simply here in Washington, it's not, it's global. So that is why Mike Pompeo is going around to various parts of the world and making this point. So the most important audience is always domestic. And so when we have elections, now China (laughs) in the United States is is becoming the same kind of um, uh, useful issue point that it has been in cases like Zambia for a long time. And we've seen this with uh, the former <laughs> president, Michael Sata, and we've seen it. This is growing in South Africa, uh, certainly in Zimbabwe and other places. China is a political issue now in election campaigns, and that's very much becoming the case here in Washington. And I have uh, heard people on the Hill say that they, they're, um, the people they work for cannot be seen taking a more positive view on China because they're afraid that their opponents will hit them with this in the election. That's very interesting. Um, so you, in, in your piece in um, American Interest, you, you uh, make the point that 
you know, that you don't feel that debt trap diplomacy really is the biggest issue, the biggest problem, particularly facing the the governments that make BRI deals with China. You um, in, instead you point to what you call um, crony capitalism um, and and its centrality in in East Asian development. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and what you mean by crony capitalism. Crony capitalism is a term that I didn't invent. It's been around for a long time. There's a wonderful book um, with that title by David Kang in which he was comparing the Philippines and their more crony capitalism with uh, aspects of crony capitalism in South Korea and then asking the question, why did, despite crony capitalism, why did South Korea do so well? So that's where the term really uh, entered into the academic discourse, I think, with David's book. But... um, So crony capitalism is capitalism with the characteristics of a close relationship between big business and the government, where the government provides benefits to big business and big business then provides benefits to political leaders. Um, Contributions for their election campaigns is a very big part of this, kickbacks. And we have seen in East Asia, president after prime minister fall in democratic countries because of these um, corruption allegations. And this has happened in Japan, it's happened in Taiwan, it's happened in South Korea, and there are many cases of this, as well, of, of course, in places like Thailand and the Philippines. So it's, a, it's very much knit into the political economies of countries in East Asia that have been growing very quickly and developing rapidly. Um, so these things can go together. So what um, what I see happening now, the Chinese development model is is evolving also in that direction, where uh, they don't have election campaigns to worry about. But there is a lot of corruption in China, and this is probably more on a personal level. It's not you know that the party is collecting contributions in order to fight. Um, election campaigns, clearly. But uh, that model of the um, businesses getting benefits from uh, the banks, uh, whoever, uh, what kinds of business deals greasing the wheels of business is something that they're very comfortable in China. Um, And so in Africa, obviously, in most parts of, of the continent, corruption and this kind of cronyism, without it being linked to business development um, necessarily, is, is endemic. Um, Cobus in South Africa, you've certainly seen this crony capitalism working um, under, it's, it, it's, it's been a problem in South Africa for quite a while. So it it is a situation which can accompany a very sort of healthy economic development, but it's when infrastructure projects are are being let out, when loans are being provided, deals get made in which there's an incentive for both parties to um, to have corruption involved. So let me give you an example of how it would work in the Chinese case. Um, and we don't have any specific evidence on it, but we we very much suspect that this is this kind of greasing the wheels happens with great regularity. So take uh, an African country, and we won't even name any, but uh, there are many, many infrastructure projects that need to be done. They may have a hydropower project that they've been wanting to do for decades and decades and decades, and they can't get funding for it. So a Chinese company comes along and says to them, hmm, you know, we've got a lot of experience in this. We would really like to do this project for you. Um, Let's see if we can make a deal on this. So they go back and forth on it. And the company will say, if you agree to go with us, we'll give you, you know, basically they'll say to the minister of infrastructure or the minister of uh, the electricity head, or even the prime minister or president, whoever it happens to be, we'll give you a kickback on this, like 10% of the contract price, essentially. They don't, may not even say it as baldly as that, but they'll say, you know, we will um, make it worth your while to work with us instead of a rival company, perhaps, on this. And then we will go to the Chinese bank, we'll package the whole thing for you, and we will get that finance. And then what needs to happen 
which isn't happening, is that Chinese bank needs to scrutinize these proposals much more closely to see where there's feather bedding and other inflated costs that are then part of how that money gets, uh, the kickback gets built into the contract price and then is available to be redistributed back to the, the African side which may be used for elections. I actually, in one of Africa's cleanest countries, which is Mauritius, I actually sat down with a former minister once and he described to me how this works. And he wasn't talking about the Chinese in particular, but he said it's just standard practice there to have a 5% uh, kickback on every construction project that the companies just know. They kick that back to the government in power and the government puts it into their election campaign funding. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So prior to our discussion today, I reached out to several uh, scholars and some analysts, and I wanted to kind of get a, their reading of your article and what they would want to ask you. And there was one theme that came back, actually, and so I'd like to kind of challenge you a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, all in the name of our good, healthy discussion here. But so there was one quote that several people came back and they said, this is the quote that, that really caught their attention. The real challenge of the Chinese push is not military or strategic. This is what you write in your article. And it is not really related to the Communist Party that still controls China. And I'm just curious about that particular line because that is a highly, highly contentious line there because a lot of people believe that while there may not be the debt trap diplomacy uh, narrative that the U.S. is is putting out because it's highly simplistic or the the kind of asset seizure uh, line that people are taking that that the Chinese are going to take the port of Mombasa or the Hambantota type of uh, of story that people are saying, but the discounting of the Communist Party role in all of this that because the line where commerce, the state-owned enterprises, the state, and the party kind of begin and end is highly flexible. We don't know actually, and it varies from country to country. And so to put that statement in, that's what caught a lot of people's attention that I spoke with leading up to it. And I'd like you to talk about this question of the party's role. And it seems like in your article, you didn't really talk about the political side of it. And that's surprising to me as well, because everything in China at some level is political. And so can talk about how you separate the corporate from the crony from the political. Well, this is an interesting set of questions. I think... Um I would, in that sentence, I would point to when I say it's not really related to the Communist Party. And what I was thinking when I wrote that was it's not really related to Communist Party, which I think is a, is a kind of a scare tactic that um, we're using a lot these days. And I hear this a lot now in Africa. The Chinese Communist Party is doing this. It's the Chinese Communist Party is doing that. What I see as the problem or the issue there is much more that relationship, that interconnectedness um, between, and it, it's the, whatever political party it would be. It could be the Guomindang. And we certainly saw this in Taiwan when the Guomindang was in power there. That's the former, um, now Taiwan is a democracy. But it's um, political parties in general um, have these relationships with these uh, businesses, and that's I think where the where an accusation of predatory lending or the the kind of where uh, lending might be made um, for projects that are inflated in cost. That's where I see the problem being. So I see it as is certainly political. Now the Communist Party is a Leninist party. It's uh, the Guomindang also was a Leninist party for that matter, and they have. Um, one of the things that's interesting about them is that they have, well, they're, they're increasing their influence now. That's very clear. They have a party cell in every Chinese company at this point, certainly in all the state-owned companies, and they're trying to have them in all the private companies as well. And they're even trying to put them in all of the foreign companies that are in China. 
So that's, um, and what is the role of that? Right now, the role of it is partly, um, in terms of the foreign companies, it would be partly getting information and feeding that back. That's something, um, this gets into a whole area that that uh, is not my area, but the whole technology transfer and the, um, uh, those kinds of concerns that I think there is a lot of uh, legitimate worry about that in the United States and certainly in, in high technology companies. But what we're talking about in Africa as um, with the concerns about this is to me, it's not the the communist um, party aspect of the relationship that we need to worry about. And it's, we see problematic um Parallel examples, for example, in Latin America, there are problems with um, former military governments having invested in businesses so that the the military and company relationship becomes one in which there's partly a commercial, um, partly a strategic aspect. It's very difficult to untangle that. So that also is something that could be problematic. What is, uh, for example, um, Narinco is one of the big Chinese companies in Africa. To what extent is that just a commercial relationship? To what extent is that influenced by politics? These things, I think, are, are areas of interesting concern. But I wouldn't say, you know, it's like the Communist Party um, and the rise of that, that's the key problem here. This is a kind of more generic problem that you can see in other parts of the world where there's no Communist Party. That's my point. So you don't think there's anything unique to the to China per se in terms of this that China is a is is becoming a hegemonic power certainly here in Asia it's a hegemonic power Nicaragua Honduras El Salvador are not hegemonic powers and the combination of China's size it's uh, it's the authoritarian model I mean as the Americans have said we've never really seen a country like this before that is authoritarian it's got the size it's continental the power that it has and the way that it's exercising that power is also unique as well. So you, you don't see anything different between how China operates and how other countries operate or well, it's just the, <laughs> the patterns are similar. Um, no, I'm just yeah, it's curious. What I, I see is um, in China's rise, I see very many parallels with Japan and Japan's rise at an earlier period. And so the way I approach it is much more, I try to disentangle what about China's rise um, can we see reflected in other countries? Um, perhaps their smaller economies. Japan is a very good comparison because for many, many years, Japan was the number two economy. Um, and so it's, you know, along with the United States. So Japan had very much very, very similar ways of going out, particularly in Southeast Asia. And Japan was not run by communists. They were run by people who had a similar East Asian developmental idea. So I think this, it's really important to tease out what is a kind of East Asian going global model that was practiced by Japan, by Taiwan, by South Korea, those last two countries um, on a much smaller scale, and Japan on a much larger scale. So Japan um, has changed today. They don't operate the same way they did in the 70s and the 80s when they were really becoming that big economy and they were really becoming hegemonic in East Asia in terms of the economy, the economic relationships. So they have changed in part because of a lot of pressure from the West and from the United States. And they've wanted to become more like the other OECD countries. So their their economy also hasn't been growing as uh, rapidly as it was during the period when they were much more kind of like China. So I see um, China's having aspects of Japan's rise. And so if we take if we explain a lot of what China does by looking at this East Asian model, then what is left over? So what's left over is this idea of a communist party and party cells and the companies and some kind of direction, some kind of political direction. That, and this is the important point, that political direction may uh, direct companies to invest in areas that are not commercially the most optimal. And those are the interesting uh, questions. And, and this is something that I've written about. Uh, I did an article a few years ago in International Affairs in which I looked at all of China's economic zone 
projects overseas. At that point, there were just, um, there were 20, roughly. And so I did this with my colleague, Tang Xiaoyang. And we looked to see, were these projects explainable as commercial ventures? Were they explainable as some kind of uh, foreign aid thing for political gain? Or were they explainable, and we looked at strategic implications in terms of um, uh, uh, mineral assets or oil assets at that point. That was a, a big concern. And so we found there that we analyzed each one of these looking at those criteria. And we found that they were, by and large, there was a commercial rationale for every one of them. It wasn't always, it didn't always pan out, but we couldn't find cases in which these investments were made in order to secure mineral assets and oil. And that was, you know, 10 years ago, that was much more what people thought the Chinese were doing. So I do think that we need to look, um, we need to have a comparative frame in which to look at China. We need to compare China with other countries uh, in the modern era that have gone out. Um, and really, Japan is a very good example as a comparison. And then we need to compare China to uh, other communist countries. So, you know, if you look at the Soviet Union, the former, um, you know, Russia, the former Soviet Union, they... And it's very different the way the Chinese operate, um, the way communism is expressed. So I really see China as having much more in common with Japan than it does with the Soviet, the former Soviet Union, with Russia, in terms of how we see it today. To to follow up on that, it seems to me from an African perspective that frequently the the, the Communist Party as an entity plays more of a cultural role, almost in terms of 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 weaving elites. Together, um, you know, be, you know, for example, you know, certain certain South African or certain African countries have a very strong kind of communist background or communist you know, cultural tradition, like Tanzania, for example. Um, and you know, to, to a large extent, actually, the South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress, is also you know, has, I mean, the the South African Communist Party still is a, a key uh, you know alliance member of of the African National Congress. But I don't particularly see the you know so. so I, I see the them, uh, you know, a communist background kind of giving them similar vocabulary, similar kind of backgrounds, putting them on the same page as culturally as as Chinese counterparts. I don't necessarily see the Communist Party acting specifically as a deal maker. There, I it's it's what's for me is is more important is the alignment of state structures. You know, um, where where some where an entity like the the import export bank and state owned enterprises can can act very efficiently in tandem to, to you know kind of to to finalize both financing and and deals. Um, is is to, to which extent do you do you see that that you know that that alignment that structural alignment is also a product of a, a particular kind of political structuring of Chinese society and the Chinese economy. Um, so to which extent do you, do you see that kind of on a, on a slightly wider scale, something that is in the in the widest sense can be seen as a kind of a product of, of central planning or a product of the, the, the party construction of, of, of China as a country, kind of playing into something like the BRI and facilitating this kind of rollout, very efficient rollout of financing to the rest of the world? Well, one of the difficult things about analyzing the activities of the Communist Party is that um, it has two dimensions. It's got the, the sort of visible activity that you see, which is uh, party members coming or people with an important part who everybody wears two hats, you know, or most people do. There's not just party operatives, but they, they have uh, other roles. But people would come in... Um, and uh, wearing the party hat, and they would uh, invite other political parties to come to uh, China or have engagement at a party-to-party -party level. And this is, uh, I have to say, this is totally legitimate uh, activity, and it's it's um, transparent to some extent. I mean, we know about these things; we read about them, um, and people have been to the party school. They've looked at what kinds of courses people take, and so on. So in some ways, this is similar to what in the United States we do with the National Democratic Institute, the International Republic Institute, IRI and NDI. We have um, 
promoting, you know, the uh, the kinds of uh, things, the values that we have in America. But we have a lot of activities that that they that these organizations do. You know, they engage in different ways. Um, in Germany, they have uh, the different political parties have their foundations and they also engage. And I remember once when I was in Taiwan at the headquarters of the um, New Democratic Party at that point, it was, it was, this was 1995, it was very new. Um, the, the, Demo- what is it? The, the Democratic Progressive Party? Yeah, DPP? exactly. The DPP. It's uh, Tsing Ing-wan's party. And I was at their headquarters back when they were new and I was really surprised to see all of these kind of posters all around of, of other political parties that had come and had that they had relationships with. So there were very many sort of party to party relationships. And I think now, so again, if we look to see what's normal about China and what's sort of I mean, what's commonly done and what's different. We see that these kinds of party-to-party relationships are quite normal to have. And so, as you were saying, Kobus, there are many parties in Africa that have their roots in, uh, I'm not sure I would say communist. I mean, certainly the Communist Party is a, is a factor in South Africa. Uh, but in, in Tanzania and other places, there's certainly strong socialist roots and, you know, they were never really communists, but uh, and and there are parties in Angola, you know, the MPLA and so on that really were communists. They were much more aligned with the Soviets. But that uh, so those kinds of party to party ties are something that we should expect to see the Communist Party making in Africa as China expands party to party relations, as they've expanded trade, as they've expanded investment, everything's expanding. So that, again, I would say is is not something to be particularly worried about. So the worry would be in uh, the things that we don't see. How how does this fact of having a party sell, um, what kinds of directives come? And so in, in those cases, what I would again want to know is uh, it, to what extent are investment decisions or other decisions being made for reasons that are not predominantly commercial or business seeking or, you know, economic development um, seeking on the part of China and the partner country. And so the, and the reason why I would be worried about that is that that would then get to what, if they're not making it for a commercial reason, then what reason are they making it for and why? And so that's something that um, I think other people worry about as well. But I have not yet seen even though the concern is there, I'm not yet seeing examples where we can say there is no commercial reason for this. What I am seeing is examples where, as with many investments, there is a lag time before um, something becomes profitable. And sometimes it never becomes profitable. And so in, in Africa and other parts of the world, not every investment is going to lead to, um, is going to you know, become a winner. So, again, I think each project needs to be analyzed, which is what we do at the China Africa Research Institute. We analyze uh, investments and loans on a loan-by-loan basis, a project-by-project basis. And so in that sense, we're still, we're not finding ones in which we're saying, okay, this is clearly not commercial in nature, so what is it? And I'm worrying about that. In the case of Africa, there's there's really, if there are examples, well, let, let's it, uh, let's discuss them and we can, you know, try to analyze it, each one. I got to tell you, it's a little bit disheartening if you don't know this, because I was really counting on you to help explain it to us as to what's going on. So um, let me, okay, let me throw something your way because this, and, and see if this kind of makes sense. So people like Howard French, who wrote uh, an excellent book, Everything Under the Heavens, uh, and he really talks about the concept of tianxia, which is a which is a Chinese historical concept of really creating interdependencies uh, you, through with China at the center of power and using Vietnam and Korea as examples throughout Chinese history. Again, the colonial parallel doesn't work because that's not been China's mo. What works is this idea of creating dependencies. And and then we just interviewed Bruno Makesh, who wrote uh, the Belt and Road: A New Chinese World Order. And he talks about how it's really he sees that the Chinese are creating an interdependency as well. So the idea being that we're going to loan you a lot of money because of our asymmetrical advantage. We are so huge compared to Ghana or Senegal or even Nigeria. 
Remember, the Chinese economy is 397 times larger than the Nigerian economy, Africa's largest economy. But because we are so large as Chinese, we never have to make any compromise. But we can force you to do whatever we want you to do because you owe us a lot of money. Now, even if we pull back some of that money through debt rescheduling and through cancellations and whatnot, there's still that dependency that's there that's created. And what that dependency means is maybe it's not overt that it says we're going to take an asset or you're going to do this for us. What it means is like what happened last year at the United Nations Human Rights Council, and not a single African Muslim country stood up to defend the United States' criticism of Chinese policies in Xinjiang. That is worth a lot of money, I would assume, to the Chinese to have that that alliance, or Huawei, to see African countries rally behind Huawei and whatnot. And the idea of these new 5G standards that are coming out, that people are going to align themselves with the Chinese side. So all of this is about this interdependency that China is going to start creating with these countries, much as it did in its own history with countries like Vietnam and, and Korea many thousands of years ago. What's, is there validity to that in your mind, that that's what they're going for in the long well, run? Well, it's interesting because in, in what you've just been saying, Eric, you keep switching back between dependency and interdependency. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I'm using those interchangeably, and I, I probably And I shouldn't. do think they are different. So I think, um, and certainly as, as academics, when we talk about dependency theory and other uh, aspects of it, um, the whole idea of dependency is, is much more of a one-way thing, whereas interdependence is much more um, intermingled. And so the idea of interdependence is that both sides have vulnerabilities, and both sides seek to get something out of, out of this relationship. And I do think that interdependence is is the way to describe it. But that's, uh, again, if I keep using this word normal, you know, the interdependence, I think, is how the world works. I was never really a, a big fan of dependency theory, although I think there are some important truths to it. But um, there are just so many examples of countries that broke out of the idea of dependency theory was that countries were kind of sort of permanently kept in a, in a subservient position by powerful and rich countries that, that were in the global north, Europe and the United States and so on. But then when we saw the East Asian countries breaking out of that, so it became clear that it could be done. And so this theory, the evidence for the theory, I think, became increasingly weak. So in the case of China... Um, I also don't see that um, they are creating uh, they're creating some dependence on them, you know, in terms of if it's 5G and if their standards become the ones that we uh, that the the world bends toward. Well, that again is it's a normal thing that countries try to do. And you know, back in the days of what was it Betamax and the other things when the video things, probably you guys are old enough to remember some of that. Yes, we are. There were, <laughs> there were standards that, you know, it was a struggle between the West and the East, essentially, on that. So there was Japanese and Korean efforts to try to get their um, standards out there. And then the West were struggling to try to get their standards out there. So these kinds of things happen in a, a globalized world, that there will be different kinds of standards. And I think now we're making, it seems we're making this into something quite scary, you know, that the Chinese will be at the head of 5G rather than, you know, the West, if we put all of it together. And I think that's a, it's a kind of a dangerous way to look at the world. And I don't think it's really necessary. Again, this to me, is a is a much more kind of commercial competition in which the Chinese are using all the different levers that they have, uh, which includes um, all the kinds of ways in which countries massage um, the business environment to make it more favorable to their countries and to their companies. And I think we can, again, look at the parallel of France. And so France in Africa has been doing this for a long time. We've heard that term France Afrique. We've seen the French presidents, one after another, going to Africa to um, try to create business for French companies. And they've been successful. And it's interesting. Um, one of the things that we're looking at more deeply now in Africa is Franco-Chinese uh, cooperation, because we're seeing where the Chinese are seeing that the French actually know how to do business in Africa. And so they're partnering with French companies. So this is, we don't see this happening with the United States companies. 
And so I think that's a very interesting thing. So why is it that they think the French are doing better? Clearly, because the French have a long track record of doing this. So in that case, getting back to the, the interdependence, are the Chinese different? Are they sort of rather than being a colonial power, they're, you know, some kind of um, uh, empire that, that acts in a different way? Well, we... <laughs> We're at it early days still in China's uh, becoming a, a very uh, huge superpower on the global stage. So ultimately, it's only history will tell. But in order, history usually does, it follows, uh, the future follows from the past. And so um, the way the Chinese are doing it now does reflect how they've done it in the past, which is they haven't gone out and occupied other countries. There have been a lot of border area. Um, the, the area around China's border historically, well, you know, around Han, China, has been in flux. If you look back uh, hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years, the, those areas of the Chinese empire, because they really are an empire within Asia, have have shifted. And China's interests have always been very much centered on, you know, their Zhonghua, they're the Middle Kingdom. They're centered on that Han part of China and then the areas right around it and then increasingly the areas in the periphery of that, which is why you see so much interest in BRI in Asia. It really is, you know, an Asia-centric program. It's interesting. Um, the, the Chinese... Uh, company Star Times uh, has been investing in broadcast um, operations in Africa. So we can see this in different parts of the continent. And Zambia is one of these places. So does is this for commercial reasons? Is it for political reasons? Well, I really see it as both. Um, the commercial reasons are that, you know, these things can be profitable. And we see also in Zambia, I think there's a South African company that's also invested um, with the Zambia Broadcasting Company in um, a, a different venture. Is there, um, there are, the Zambia Broadcasting Company actually has two subsidiary companies. One of them controls the satellite um, distribution of uh, television imagery, and the other one controls the more... Um, uh, the land-based uh, distribution, cable distribution. And that's the one that the Chinese company, Star Times, is involved in a joint venture with ZBC. So this kind of thing is, on, in, in a nutshell, it's probably commercially viable. But at the same time, the Chinese are very interested in having an alternative uh, message out there that can compete with um, CNN and the other Western uh, messages that are not being directed by our governments, but that are out there presenting a different version of Chinese activities. So they're very much interested in I think building up, and we can see this with their media outlets in Kenya and so on, they're building up a media presence that serves as an alternative source of information. And I think uh, there, a, a lot of this, what the Chinese want to, the message they want to get out there has to do still with what's happening domestically. And this gets back to what are the kinds of things that they would use leverage to the extent that they have it, that they use it. And the leverage that I've seen um, is, it's a sort of light leverage, but it's through their foreign aid program, for example, the grants, the uh, zero interest loans. These are used as we, as most people that listen to your podcast would be familiar, these only go to countries that have formal dipl diplomatic relations with with Beijing. And so in this sense, the Chinese look at that as a domestic issue. Those countries can't have relationships with Taiwan. So the same kind of, um, one could move from that to things like Xinjiang, uh, what's happening with the Uyghurs, human rights votes. These are all, the Chinese are very concerned about the domestic situation and things that they regard as core interests domestically. So Taiwan, uh, Xinjiang, Tibet, these are the areas in which they will be very concerned to have alignment between their, the other countries that they're engaged with and China in terms of votes at various fora. So 
all of these different instruments will come together in very specific instances, like uh, a vote that comes up. Or to, to give you another example where the alignment um, would kick in is in things like at the WTO. So this is a, another global forum where the Chinese very much want to be recognized as a market economy. I think clearly there are uh, there's a big gap between um, the way things work in China and a pure market economy. But, um, and, and they aren't yet there, uh, but they are trying to get all the countries that are in the WTO, they're trying to get more and more and more um, of a toward a consensus. So that when the votes come up about the market status, uh, or when the discussion comes up, because they don't actually vote, it has to be a consensus, that they have a lot of uh, partner countries, a predominance of the countries that are members of the WTO would be ones that support the Chinese view. So that's, again, something where... Um, it's it's not so much they will say, vote with us on this or be on our side or we'll take away your loan. It's much more a sort of a persuasion, a kind of a friendly environment that um, we're good friends in this together and these are our core interests of ours and therefore um, uh, we would really appreciate your support uh, when this comes up. And so, and these are not really core interest for most of the African partners. So they're like, well, it doesn't really hurt us to support the Chinese position, they would probably say. It's a very slow um, and kind of a steady buildup of a set of instruments that can support uh, China's core interests at home while also being used to support their commercial interests. So it, it's very interesting in that regard. The United States just doesn't do this. So Professor Deborah Braudigam is the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. If you've been listening to this podcast for anything more than one or two weeks, you obviously know who she is. Uh, probably the most well-known scholar on China-Africa issues uh, anywhere in the world, and we are very, very grateful for you to join us today. The article is Misdiagnosing the Chinese Infrastructure Push. We'll have a link to it in our show notes uh, in the American Interest. Also, don't forget that uh, Deborah wrote uh, The Dragon's Gift, The Real Story of China in Africa, and also Will Africa Feed China? These, in many ways, are benchmark books that a lot of people in the the space that we're in here reference. So it's really, really important that you read it, even if it is a, they are both a couple years old, but they're very, very important in terms of kind of keeping our discussion focused. So, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, Eric and Kobus. It's great to be with you. Kobus, when I give talks on China-Africa to students or to different groups, one of the things I say is that if at the end of my discussion you're more confused than when, you, when we started, then I have John done my job well. And I got to be honest with you, at the end of this discussion with uh, Professor Braudigam, I'm actually a little more confused than when we started. And I think that is not a criticism at all of Professor Braudigam. It's more of a sign of the times of where we are. I don't really fully understand what the U.S. is doing right now in its debt trap diplomacy narrative if it's not really working and if she's saying that people at the lower end of the echelons are serious and they get it and then the, poli the political leaders are fact-challenged and they're continuing to promote this even though it's not true. I don't know if that's a bold strategy or if it's just stupidity. Uh, I don't know about what she says in terms of the line where politics begin and end and commerce begins and end and the debt trap and what they're doing in terms of the massive amount of loans. I still don't understand why China is loaning so much money to Senegal. This is a country that is not strategically important. It's a country that doesn't have natural resources, but yet there are massive loans going to Senegal. So again, I am confused, but I think everybody to some degree is confused. And anybody who says they're not confused at this point, even just a little bit, uh, I would question and I would think they're lying. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think <laughs> I just I, I accused think... everybody of being a liar. And then, you know, so I say that <laughs> yeah, slightly that's, euphemistically. That's Air go. quotes are going up. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a, you, you, you backed quite a lot of things into what you said. Uh, on the U.S. side, it, it seems to me, you know, it becomes a kind of a difficult question always, I think, with, with politicians as a whole to really, to really 
pinpoint whether they 100% exactly believe what they're saying, you know. Um, and in, I think the debt trap in the way that that, that people like Mike, Mike Pompeo is, is pushing it at the moment is a good example. I think mostly it tends to communicate with the domestic audience rather than with the, the foreign countries he's addressing in his statement. Um, I think it also... Um, you know, it, it it plays. It's a very convenient story to tell, right? Kind of rather than a more nuanced one. Um, and so, and, and it's a, it's a story that 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 has a lot of convenient gaps. You know, including how exactly what, what exactly um, are the options open to these countries that you know the non-China options. What you know, it, you know, as as Deborah has pointed out in some of her other work. The World Bank is for a long time hasn't been funding infrastructure for at all. Um, you know, the the it, 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 infrastructure funding really fell out of fashion at the World Bank, and they're only really starting to kind of to come back to it now. So you know, so that that's another issue that that's kind of just left out of the out of the conversation in the debt trap um, conversation. I think you know, kind of as as for 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 Africa, it it becomes an issue. I think of not only not only you know kind of what china wants and what china's kind of long long term goals are but it's also a kind of a politics of the possible you know it's like what what is being enabled by for Africa by a, a particular kind of focus that the Chinese government has taken on, you know, kind of. So at the moment, the Chinese government, its focus seems to be on rolling things out, you know, rolling finance out, and um, you know, and uh, even to places that don't seem immediately strategically important. And for Africa, that's great news. And I think most African countries are like, well, you know what, we'll go with this. Um, you know, while it lasts, let's 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 see if we can get some stuff done. And uh, you know, that might well be the you know, the limit of the knowability you know kind of we might not be able to know more than that at, at present uh yeah i guess i slightly disagree with you and professor Braudigam in the sense that i think it's more than that i think there is a, a stronger political element to it i do think they're trying to create a certain degree of dependence i'll be very clear here not to say interdependence but i think that the asymmetry in the power dynamics between the massive chinese economy and africa's small economies uh, creates dependence. And I think that is something that China wants to foster because that historically is what China has always done. Uh, so I don't say that in any kind of negative, critical way. It's just this is the way it's been. And I think this is what the Chinese are dying trying to do. That doesn't, again, the lines are not clear. That doesn't mean that what China's doing is overtly political or political first. It means that in the salad bowl of objectives, Politics is always there. It's the dressing that kind of coats everything to some degree. That's that's my take. But we have no way of knowing, though. So there's no way to prove you're right or I'm right either way. Well, you know, I think I think that that is kind of one of one of Deborah's broader points is that there's never just going to be one thing. You know, kind of, is they always they always want to hit a bunch of different strategic, economic, and political, st politically strategic kind of targets at once. You know, so it's always they're never going to do something, especially not something of this size, that only fits one or only kind of reaches one goal. You know, kind of only political influence, only economic expansion. It's always going to be several of those at once. And so, um, so you know, of course, kind of political you know, kind of political networks, strategic alliances, and maybe some dependence, I think is they, they all kind of turn into into kind of the same thing. You know, kind of, I don't, I, I, I tend to not agree with you in terms of a direct dependence relationship. No. But I, I, I think more... I don't think direct it, dependence, it's, but... Yeah. It's, it's more of a, of a kind of a an elite-elite relationship where everyone is kind of, where, where you get everyone on your page. You know, kind of where all of the people who are pulling the levers in all of these countries start learning that, or start finding ways in which their own interests are overlapping with China in convenient ways. Um, you know, and and those where where they and and it's it's a weird it's a weird kind of like you know version of win win in a strange way. You know, kind of where where it's like and and this is not win win for the countries involved necessarily, but it's definitely win win for the elites involved. You know, so it's like elite elite relationships where where they um, where everyone is kind of pulling in the same direction, but maybe for different reasons. So we may not be able to agree on the level of politics, but I think there's one thing that is now crystal clear after the past two or three weeks and the amount of research that has come out from scholars like Professor Braudigam 
to, again, development agencies and consultancies like Development Reimagined, whose CEO Hannah Ryder published uh, some data of theirs, the Rodian Group, and also Damien Ma at Macro Polo and Umesh Mora Mudali uh, in The Diplomat wrote all of this, that there is no evidence to support the debt trap theory as it's presented by the Americans today. So that is, Hambandota in Sri Lanka does not present a good case study for this. So the next time you get into an argument with somebody and they bring up the Sri Lanka port, ask that person for the data and they won't have it because they're just repeating usually a talking point out of the State Department. So this is really, really important. So I'm really happy in that sense that the debate is at least moving forward. We're going to hopefully get past the debt trap and maybe even the the geniuses on the seventh floor of the State Department will catch up with this. But again, maybe it doesn't matter. They're fact challenged. Maybe they don't really care about telling the truth because they're talking to a very, very partisan American audience. And that's maybe not what they're interested in. So I don't I don't really quite understand it. But we would like to hear from you. You can see this was a very robust conversation. There are going to be people who are on all sides of it. And so let us know what you think. We would love to hear from you via email. You can send a Kobus and I an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, Kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. Also follow our email newsletter that goes out every Monday. And uh, we talk about these issues every week in that newsletter. And we publish everything that comes out of the China Africa Research Initiative every week uh, there. So it's a great resource for that as well to see what Deborah's team is doing. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.